Welcome to the Redemptions Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, redemptionshill.com. All right, it's good to be here uh, with you today. Uh, thank you for the appreciation on Pastor Appreciation uh, Month. Um, yeah, thank you. Uh, there have been some that have brought us meals uh, and done other kind things to show their appreciation. So uh, it just it means a lot. And it's a crazy time where the question is, are we doing the right thing? Uh, words of encouragement are, are super, super helpful. So uh, thank you for that. Now, um, for this week, what a journey we've been on lately, covering the opening of Jesus's uh, very first sermon, specifically diving into uh, the Beatitudes with the sections that follow it. If you're catching up, we actually finished the Beatitudes two weeks ago, which the timing of that section was, was extremely intentional for us. It wasn't random. Leading up to the elections here in the U.S., we wanted to hear from Jesus about where blessing and flourishing actually come from. Uh, there have been so many voices declaring to us that they know the path to health, uh, that, that they know the path for flourishing, for, for the good life, that they know how to, to make us happy and fix our uh, nation. But Jesus described clearly for a believer where blessing actually comes from in the Beatitudes by fleshing out the reality of what a Christian life looks like in the middle of the world that we live in. The hope uh, for going into the Beatitudes is that we would not attach our our identity uh, or our hope more to a political platform than we would the words of our Savior about living a distinct life and that being where blessing comes from. We want to trust him over anything else. Now, one of the major themes that, that I, I want us to be able to see uh, is that we in our current uh, world right now have a lot of people who have fixed their, uh, really the, the, their supreme hope on men and women and policies. Right, we can see it all around now. Uh, people have fixed their hope on a political party remaining in power or a uh, new party stepping into power uh, in order to bring us to, to a better spot, to fix what is broken in us, to restore us to a spot uh, of health, of, of decency, of prosperity. Any of the words that, that you want, a lot of people have fixed their hope on that. And you can feel it through the conversations we have. Uh, when you watch the news, if you were brave enough or could stumble the debates, you could hear it there as well. There is this sense that one candidate will bring about what we deeply, deeply need. One of the parties being in power uh, will, will kind of fix us. They'll give us what we need. Now, as followers of Christ, we have to recognize that that language of someone coming into power and fixing what we need, that language is actually the language of, of redemption. Uh, and therefore, the political process for many in our nation has become really a gospel. It's become their, their good news, the, the news of how we will be fixed, of how restoration, healing, uh, rightness will be restored in us. When you pause for a moment and you look at the kind of narrative that we have in our culture, uh, it's actually the exact same language found in the Bible, complete with all the elements of, of creation, fall, redemption, and, and even restoration is the, the message that we hear right now, that we were, as a country, created good, right? And we didn't do anything wrong to the Indians. We were good.
good. We, you know, we came in as good people, God's country, right, carrying a beacon of morality to the world, but now we are broken. Uh, we have fallen. Uh, there's a sense of hatred, chaos, disarray, unknown. And because of that fallenness and that brokenness, we need redemption. We need salvation. We need fixing, uh, specifically, the people believe through a political candidate, and that candidate will restore us. Uh, they will repair our brokenness. They will let us uh, live in an era of, of healing and prosperity and overall contentment. This is why the election is so volatile this year, maybe more than in years than we have remembered, because the hope of many has been placed fully on democracy on and somebody who's going to lead us. It has been placed on a gospel of men and women being in, in office, giving us what we need, giving us the, the future that we desperately want to come to pass. With all that said, as a believer, our hope is not the same as that of the world. But we have to understand that. Our hope isn't in, and this is what uh, me and Garrett have been saying back and forth to each other, our hope is not in a return to normalcy. We can want that. That's not where our hope is. Our hope isn't in a person being in office. Our hope is not in the right or the left or the red or the blue or the conservative or the liberal. Our hope has been transferred fully onto the shoulders of Christ. Our hope has been reassigned to his life, death, and resurrection. Our hope is in Christ's finished work on the cross for all who believe in him. That is where our hope is now. That doesn't mean as Christians we ignore the elections or the political process. That, that's not at all what it means. It just means that we engage with them in a very different way than people who do not have our hope would. Uh, that, that we don't fix our deepest needs on, on people coming in and leading our country, that, that we don't believe that our redemption or restoration will come from them. Why? Because the posture of redeemer is already taken in our hearts. We have a restorer. The king of kings is, is the one that we follow. He is our lead and we live in his kingdom before we live in the United States. Sounds tense for us to say, but that is what we proclaim. Our hope is firmly in Jesus. Now, if we truly believe that, what's the good news about that? That you can go vote in confidence. And not because you have the quote-unquote right choice, but no matter who gets in office, your soul has still been made right with God. So I can go vote, my guy can get in, or my guy cannot get in, or you can even stay home. And Jesus is still king. Now, why this long lead in? Well, obviously, because the elections are coming. And it's primary in our heart. But also this, uh, while, while many believe that our greatest problems hinge on the election coming up very soon, Jesus, right after the Beatitudes, says, no, 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 there's a greater problem. There's a greater problem, and he will lead all who follow him. Everyone who's a Christian, he asks all of them to come play a part in the role of seeing this problem remedied. And he, and he calls that role us being the salt and the light of the earth. Matthew 5, we'll... We'll read actually the, the 1 through uh, 16 because we want to keep showing how the Beatitudes and salt and light go together. They're not divorced from each other. But Matthew 5, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus, this is, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 13. You're the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall salt be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, 14 through 16 now is the one that we're specifically looking at today. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Now we tackled these sections, the the Beatitudes, and then the salt and the light texts together so that we can hopefully understand that they were always intended to be together. Jesus in the Beatitudes shows us who we are in him as we follow him. What does that look like? We are the poor in spirit. We are those who mourn over our sin. We are those who are meek. We are those who humble and thirst for righteousness. We are those called to be merciful. We are the pure. We are the peacemakers. And with the salt and light text, we build in to show what we do. The flow, as we showed last week, is who we are is crucial to what Jesus has asked us to do as we follow him. Those things are always latched together. In the language uh, from before, the who we are plays a significant role in taking part in seeing the greater problem of humanity being fixed through Jesus. It plays a role in seeing redemption come to the lives of countless people who do not know God as Father who do not know what redemption is like. For this reason, Jesus shows us that we were redeemed to redeem. That's so important. You weren't just saved out of hell. You were saved into the mission of God. Now, our adoption into the family of God carries with it a calling to minister with God by living redeemed lives that have a profound effect in the world around us. Now, the question that we came up with last week, if that is really true, is what happens if Christians aren't very Christian, though? What if the lives of those who are called to be salt and light are undistinguishable from those who don't follow Christ? What if the new creation looks exactly like the old creation? If that is the case, we will never be the salt of the earth that we are called to be. We won't be those who give the community around us a different feel because we follow Jesus. We won't be those who literally push back darkness in a, a world bent on decaying. And we will not be those who make the, the, the soul of men and women thirst for something deeper through Jesus. Now this week through faithfulness, Jesus is going to add to that and say you are the light of the world. Salt of the earth last week, you are the light of the world. Much like last week, these are metaphors, Right? But this metaphor, it does not hit us the same way as it would have hit them back then because of uh, really both, both metaphors don't hit for the same reason. The invention and the implementation of electricity has changed kind of everything for us. It has completely taken away the struggle for light, right? Those words together are even weird for us, struggle and light. Like we have light bulbs everywhere, tons of them. Have you ever taken a moment to count how many light bulbs you have in your house? I think maybe the, the, the only time I may have tried is when LED lights became a thing. And I was like, I'm going to go get some. They're like, they're $28 a piece. No, I'm not. I have too many bulbs in the house, right? Uh, then we have lights outside of our house to, to light the path for when people come in. I have strings of lights on my deck so we can hang out and have some ambiance with light. 
We have lights on our cars. Regular fashion, we have the blinding fashion, and some of us even have fog lamps. We have lights on our cell phones, for crying out loud. Not to mention we have flashlights. Just stuck in random places, probably not where we actually know where they are. For us, getting rid of darkness is as easy as, as flipping a switch or pressing a button in our home, uh, and that would not have been the case for them. I, I wonder if you remember the last time your electricity went out at night. The scramble, the anxiety, I can't see, and you scramble for your candles if you have some, and, and then after you find your candles, you're like, what, great, I gotta find a lighter or, or matches, and then when you get those together, you get them all lit, and then you realize the wicks are all messed up, and then you kind of get them trimmed, and then you get them lit, and then you kind of put them in certain places in the house to, to try and lighten things up, and, and then you kind of remember like, man, it's really hard to get it very bright in, in here. Though this scenario is few and far between for us, it's their everyday normal. It was a constant battle to have light. Hear this, because this is kind of the crux of what we understand, what we have to understand. It took intentional effort to have light for them. The ability to have light was an ever-present struggle and a big deal. This is why this metaphor hits differently uh, for us than it does them, because to us, light is automatic. Right? It's assumed. It is effortless. While for them, it's not automatic. It's never assumed. And you always had to actually do quite a bit of work for them to have light. Now, what does this mean for us? Since the metaphor lands differently on us to them, where can we be in, in some problem situations? Well, this means that because we don't struggle for light, we can tend to believe that our struggle to be light isn't very hard either. Maybe we see that, that we're, we're automatically lights because light is automatic. We can tend to think that without intentionality, we'll just be blazing lights into the world around us because we're just special little lights, right? And in the church for the past 80 years, there's been a song that we've sang to children about that, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And then you repeat it 8,000 times. But that's kind of problematic though. Jesus is is not telling us to uh, believe that we inside of ourselves are special, unique, little, beautiful lights. That's not what he's saying here. The, the, the light in, inferred here is not the light of our own personal goodness. It seems like a, a, a very American mindset to tie the light of the world to something that you have in you innately by yourself. This kind of transfer of my own special internal uh, beautifulness being the light of the world would have never been something that hit the metaphor back then. Jesus is not saying, okay, you believer, Go out there and do your thing. You be you. You be beautiful. You be the spark. You, you be the charm that the world needs. That, that's not at all what he's saying. That logic is way more Oprah than it is Jesus. It's way more self-actualization than savior transformation as well. Let's explain the dismissal of our personal light. And I'm not trying to tee off, but if we don't understand what the light is, we'll always be, we'll always be confused and we'll never actually be light. Jesus says this, he says, you are the light of the world to us. But in John 8, verse 12, he says this, he says he's the light of the world. And he says it in a pretty emphatic way, a way that can't be ignored, a way that is crystal clear. He says, I'm not one of many lights. I'm not a possible light. I am the light, the only light, the source of light, the beginning and the end of light. I am light, he says. And the light has come into the darkness and the darkness will not overcome him. 
Now, it's weird that Jesus says both of these statements, right? He says that he is the light of the world, and now he says that we are the light of the world. Now, now what exactly does he mean? Is he confused? Did he change his, his mind? How, how do we think of that? Well, the, the, the first way to understand that is the presiding law over biblical interpretation is the Bible. It best interprets the Bible, meaning if you come to a passage that's confusing, Ask yourself, what does the rest of the Bible speak about that passage that can help you out? Let's see if this will help. Uh, what other scriptures speak into this that could, that could help us understand why Jesus says he's the light, but also we are? Ephesians 5, 8 and 14. In 5, 8, it says this. At one time you were darkness. This would be two believers. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Then, then if we go down to verse 15, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. When we look at these verses, we see a theme that often repeats itself over the Bible, that our light, the light that we shine into the world, it's, it's not our own light. It's not that we have some extremely personal, individual specialness that fixes the world, but rather that as children of light, we shine the Lord's light and Christ into the world around us. Now, now how do we think of this? The way that theologians have talked about this for, for ages and ages and ages is, is to look at the moon. The moon on, on nights can appear to be blazingly radiant, can't it? Super, super bright. It can shine in a way that, that a pitch black night, you can go out and you can actually see without running your face into something. It's extremely bright and it'll light up the sky fairly well. Even though that happens, what we have to realize is, is the moon is not a light source. The, the moon has absolutely zero light of its own. Uh, all the light, all the brightness, all of the, 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 the radiance that you see off of the moon is simply a reflection of the greater light, which is the sun, meaning the sun shining off the moon is so bright that it reflects back to us. And it seems as if it has its own light. This is the metaphor that he's talking about. This is how the light of Christians should work in the world. We are reflectors of our Savior. We shine his light into the darkness. We shine the light that he's shown upon us back into the world around us. This is how Jesus said that he is the light of the world and that we are the light of the world and, and didn't change his mind and he wasn't wrong. Christ is tapping back into some of the, a little bit of dark imagery over the salt metaphor for last week. Just as the world is decaying on its own and, and needs a preservative, the world on its own is, is dark and completely absent of light and has no ability to produce or receive light on its own. So Christ is saying the only way the darkened world will get light the only chance that they have of seeing Christ and being changed is by followers of Christ being the light of the world. By followers of Christ shining the light of Jesus into the communities around them, this makes his words next make a whole lot more sense. I hope you're tracking with what, what we're saying. The only hope for a dark world to see Jesus is, is you modeling Jesus. He says, a city uh, set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Jesus is saying that light is worthless if it's hidden. 
It's worthless if it can't be seen. Now let's make sure to, 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 to hold the trajectory so far in the entire sermon. We are those who are poor in spirit, who mourn over our brokenness, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We are the merciful, the pure, and the peacemakers so that we can be the light of the world, so that we can shine the light of Jesus into the world around us. Now, maybe this could be an aha moment for you. When we live out the, the, the character trait of being poor in spirit, what are we doing? We're showing the world we need a savior. I can't fix myself. I have a brokenness that I could not deal with. I, I, I have uh, desires and things that don't work out well, and only it is Christ and Christ alone, and his work for me is the only thing that saves me. When you live out poor in spirit, you're showing the people around you Christ. Uh, when we are meek, when we are merciful, when we are peacemakers, we are also modeling the character of our Savior Jesus. Think about this. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's Jesus' righteousness that we're hungering and thirsting for. The Beatitudes aren't just some uh, random thing about blessing and flourishing, and they're not empty rules that a capricious God is making us uh, pay attention to. They are the way to shine the light of Jesus into the darkened world around us. All who follow Jesus are transformed by him first and then shine his light back into the world second. It is he who changes us and thereafter we strive to be like him. That is what follower of Christ means. We don't just follow in word. We follow by trying day after day to emulate and be shaped by him. And the world who literally has uh, no other way to escape from the darkness has an opportunity to see the light of Christ through us following him where we live. When Jesus says a city on a hill can't be hidden and light shouldn't be covered up, he's saying light's not meant to be hidden. It's meant to shine. How odd would it be? And you have to think of their cities and the way they looked back then. To have a city up on a hill and they'd work really hard to light the perimeter walls so that, so that people, maybe if they're coming to attack, would be fearful or people could see it from a distance. How odd would it be to work really hard to light the exterior walls and then try and hide them? It, it would be very odd. And then how odd would it be to do the work of, of finding a light, trimming a wick, getting it ready, lighting it, putting on a stand, and then put a basket over it? He's saying that makes no sense. His nudge is to see that light that is not visible is of absolutely no value to the darkness. Some theologians have said that that lamp that you put a basket over is not only not valuable to the darkness, it's also a fire hazard. It's dangerous. Christ by his light has come into the world to shine upon those who are lost. He's come the, the, the ability to live in the gospel is, is to first have the darkness in you exposed and say, there's something, there's sin in me that I cannot fix. I need your help. He lets us see that we have a need. That we have a need of a redeemer. He pulls us out of our bondage and sin. And then he calls former children of darkness to be bright shining lights into the world that still needs them. I wonder how you feel about that premise though. To be light in the darkness. How do you feel about the idea of standing out like a sore thumb? How do you like the idea of standing out? Not standing out as being famous, not standing out as becoming rich or an influencer or having a loud voice on, online, but standing out as in you appearing to be distinctly different than others around you. 
standing out as in noticeably your life just seems to go in a different way than other people, standing out as appearing to be the weird one who does not fit in. It seems from a young age we're taught to fit in, to be a part, to be normal, and we have it ingrained to some degree that not doing that is going to hurt us. And yet being distinctly different is at the center of our calling. We, as the light, are distinctly different from those who are darkness. If we are constantly trying to blend into the world around us in every way, we have to understand we'll do it at the expense of being the light of the world. This is why it's a tragic thing for believers to assume they're the light. The light is in them, but they may not actually be shining it. This is why Jesus says you don't put a light under a basket. You put it on a stand. You put it somewhere where it can shine where it can be visible, where it can break up darkness. One of the constant wrestles has been and will continue to be having the faith to not try and distance ourselves from Jesus's light because the idea of being a light shining into the darkness, it on the surface can seem cool, right? I'm the light of the world. Special little light shining out. Like on the, on the surface, that, that seems so like pretty and nice, but then you actually start thinking about well, what does that actually look like? When we actually walk that out in life, it's terrifying. It's terrifying to look different than everyone else. It's terrifying also because the same world that rejected Christ's light, there's a very good chance that some of them will reject his light when you shine it as well. This light metaphor has built in uh, some help for us, though, when we are fearful of standing out. How do you muster the faith? How do we get the courage to shine Christ's light? to be okay with standing out. How, how, do, how do we do that? How, how do we muster that inner courage? And, and the, the great pastoral answer is, 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 well, we don't, at least not on our own. The way to find courage, the way to be okay with being distinctly different comes simply by looking at Jesus more and more and more and more in your life so that your love for him overshadows your fear of other people rejecting you. What does this mean? Need more faith? need more courage, need more strength, look at Jesus. All the analogies in John, abide in him, abide in him, abide in him. And that's the place where you find strength. I don't want to oversimplify things for us, but we often get so terrified of the world and we're often so scared of standing out. And because of that, we've slowly kind of stopped looking at Jesus. And every time we do that, when we stop looking at him, what's certain is your, your, uh, your faith will not grow. It will falter and your fear will grow making sure that we don't have too much Christianese here. What does it mean to look at Jesus? We, we have been programmed for so long to think of the Bible as this tragic duty in order to make God not mad. Here's your reality. If you're a Christian, you're beloved. He's not mad. Why? Because he looks at Jesus or he looks at you and sees the righteousness of Christ. Going to your word, praying, singing and worship, things that, that historically have stirred our hearts towards Christ are what it means to look at him. When we go to the Bible, we're not saying, show me the best way to live on Tuesday. We're saying, show me you because you're better than anything that will happen. When you're praying, you're going, align my heart with yours because if I, if, if I take off without you, my heart's going to go to a weird spot. So please, please, please draw my heart to you. When we worship, we're saying this is what is, is true and I believe this and my heart needs to be stirred for. Even when we gather, what are we doing? We're looking at Jesus. 
The problem is when we stop looking at Jesus, fear will definitely grow. If nothing else, maybe I hope that you would see that this week. Reading your word and praying is not about making God not be angry. It's about seeing Jesus more. Then in verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that we may see or so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who's in heaven. If we ask, okay, exactly how do I shine the light of another into the world? Right? It's confusing. How do I do that? Like practically, what does it look like to get this from metaphor to reality? Jesus seems to see that question coming a mile ahead and he begins to answer one really practical way to shine the light of Christ into the world is by your good works. By modeling Jesus in public and others taking notice of it and giving God credit for the goodness that they see in you. What does this look like? It looks like following Jesus in the world, doing good works, not so that he gives you a high five, but so other people look at you curiously and go, God's the only reason that he could do that to that guy. That's the only, that's the only valuable reason that I could see him being like that is God must have done something because there's no way without God that would be happening. This is what Jesus is saying. Now, this verse may also sound confusing since later Jesus blasts the Pharisees for doing their, their good works in, in a very public manner so that they can be seen. Again, it leaves us going, well, Jesus, why are you telling us to do public works? And then you're blasting them for it. The, the distinction of the problem between one and the other is all about who receives the glory. The Pharisees did works so that they would be glorified. They, they did works publicly so people would applaud them, so that people would praise them, so that people would respect them, so that people would think that they had it together. All of their good works were all about just love me and tell me how great I am. But there's a way to do good without glorifying yourself and hoping that God receives the glory for it. This is what Jesus is talking about. This could be the way that we think of these last sections in broad terms. Church, look at Jesus so that he may transform you. Then follow Jesus in the Beatitudes because you trust him. And as you follow him, make him visible to others who don't know him. Look, follow, show. That's what our calling is. Look at Jesus because you can't do it on your own. Follow Jesus because your way won't lead you to a good spot and he's the only path. Show the world the Jesus that has so fully transformed you. This is our identity. This is our calling. This is what Jesus is asking through the metaphor of being salt and light. What a beautiful and high calling we have. God forgive us for thinking that's dutiful. Those who have received light, when they were in the darkness, get to shine it back into the world who needs it. After Jesus gave this declaration of us being salt and light, though, we'll wrestle with how, how do you end a message like this? Jesus calls this, follow me and show me to the world. And I find it interesting that he doesn't then give 10 to 15 best practices on how to do that. So because of that, I'm not going to either, but the way that we might end this is maybe by way of reminder, if you are a Christ follower, you've been invited into the family of God. You have been made right with God. And now you get to display him. I, mean, I pray that our hearts would hear that as a high calling. And then we'd ask the Holy Spirit just practically in worship as we wind down today, Holy Spirit, what does that look like for me right now? What does it look like to be solved? What does it look like to be light in, in, my, in my neighborhood, in my world, in my job? What does it look like? Because I don't know. What does it look like? And 
maybe through even praying that the Holy Spirit would be faithful to speak into your heart and encourage you about what it looks like to follow Jesus faithfully so that you may show him. Let's say if you struggle to believe that you could be the light of the world, I also pray with fresh eyes that you would see the term beloved over you. You are called, you are forgiven, and you have Christ's light right now if you're following him by grace and not by your own ability. And you can rejoice in that. If you feel like your light, your example isn't good enough, remember it's not your light you're shining anyway. It's Jesus's. His resume is more than enough to be confident in. We so often struggle to feel that we're loved and good enough instead of showing the one who has loved us well to the world who still needs him. Church in our culture right now, it isn't hard to see darkness and strife. But I think we have a kind of a unique moment in our history, though, not to fix all the things right with the world, but to shine the light of the one who can help fix them into the world. What would it look like to be dreamers for a moment and consider that? In a deep sense, what if our hearts stopped trying to fit in and trusted and displayed Jesus? What would that look like? What, what beautiful and lasting results would that bring into our communities and our families and our neighborhoods if Christ were the one that we followed fearlessly instead of trying to fit in? Friends, there is so much brokenness and so much hurt and so much fear and so much anxiety and a need. The world is begging for hope right now. And if you follow Jesus, the beautiful news is you have that hope. Man, I pray that we would become those who are courageous in Christ and not ourselves. And that maybe over the next couple of years, where, where many pandemics or where a pandemic will actually close many churches, that the mission of God would move forward because we trust Jesus in it. That's my sincere hope. What, what the word is or what it looks like is for those who hold on to waiting till normalcy comes back and aren't loving the world now. It may be a tough next couple of years for those churches. I pray that we would wake up and display Jesus now. Garrett, you can come up. If you would stand with me, we're going to end up taking communion today. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here's what we get to do today in communion. I know communion in, in this time is weird. There's the cups in the front area if you haven't grabbed one. We are proclaiming the Lord's death to each other and to our own hearts. Christ has come and he didn't leave us alone. We are in the dark and he came as light into the world to bring us redemption. And we are proclaiming he died for me. He died for the me that has transpired in 2020. He died for my sins and my shame, and he has provided a sacrifice. So as you take the drink and you, and you, and you take the, 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 the bread and you take the cup, you're remembering his broken body and his blood was shed for you. I pray that you would be encouraged in that that you would receive hope deep in your heart. It is a difficult thing to want to be the light of the world if your heart is discouraged at the moment. So I pray that you would find uh, really just strength for your soul by taking and understanding that there's a sacrifice for you. And I pray this week that our hearts would be stirred towards being the light of the world. What a beautiful call to show a world that desperately needs Jesus, the one and only thing that will save their souls.
God, I pray that you would you would help us, Lord. Let us see the beauty of your mission. And I pray that you transform us so profoundly that it doesn't feel like work, that we just follow you completely and boldly with truth and that people would come to know you from it, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would pull our fingers apart from the tight grasp on hoping for normalcy again and we would see that you're our savior even now. I pray that we would begin to hope in you, that our hearts would be stirred in you, that our contentment would be found in you and we begin to just pray for our neighborhoods. Lord, I pray for the houses near us. I pray for the people at our work. I pray for awkward encounters from friends from high school that we could see just through all the things around us that we have opportunities to show the world you. Lord, I pray that we would begin to, even when we see encounters with people, begin to have our souls ask, is this a moment that they could see your light, Jesus? That your Holy Spirit would dialogue with us and help us to see how in the world we walk this thing out well, Lord, because we want to be the light that you've called us to be in our world, Lord. Lord, we plead with you and hope for you that through this, you would awaken our hearts and in six months or a year's time that we would see many people who've come to know you through it. Other people who are in darkness, just like we were at one time, that they would come to know the beauty of your salvation, God. Do your work. Change us, change our city, Lord, we ask and beg that. Be glorified in what we're doing this morning. We love you. We praise you, God. Amen.